Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, Dr. Shetra Werta-Liker from Denver, Colorado. She's a psychologist and adult adoptee. Uh, She's with us today to talk about a litany of different things, um, but... Uh, one of the things that I, that I want to uh, draw your attention to, even right here from the start, even if you want to hit pause for a second, is that um, of all of our guests so far, uh, Dr. Wordeliker may have the best resource page I've ever seen for transracial adoptive parents. And so I uh, would really encourage you to uh, go and check out the things that are on her page, uh, the different resources from uh, books to journals to articles to webinars, all that um, incredibly helpful. And uh, she sits in a very unique place in this conversation um, as we have it as a, both a professional, um, as a psychologist who, who runs her own practice, but also as an adult adoptee uh, and an adoptive mom. So you're going to hear a bunch of different perspectives and, and um, practical advices from her today. It's, it's an incredible episode, um, and you don't want to miss what she's got to say. Uh, and so stay tuned for that in just a few minutes. But just as a reminder, we're, we're going through uh, a series on transvisual adoption and talking um, to adult adoptees and giving, uh, giving them a chance to, to just kind of let their voices be heard and, and share their experiences because uh, November is National Adoption Awareness Month. And, and as we talked about in the last couple of episodes, it was set aside about 15 years ago, November was, um, as National Adoption Awareness Month um, by the Department of Health and Human Services. And so it was done to be able to raise awareness for adoption um, for the thousands of kids that are waiting uh, for adoption in the foster care system in the U.S. And so we've, we've linked an article to that in the show notes. Um, but just a reminder, for those who are most impacted by adoption, which is adoptees, uh, this month can just be hard. It can bring up a, a whole range of emotions. Um, and so uh, this is something that is right in line with our mission and Empowered to Connect. We want to listen to the hearts and stories of adoptees uh, who are part of transracial families and um, and give them the uh, credit. We want to elevate their voices um, and, and give them the dignity and the, the credit, the honor of hearing their stories and taking them uh, as opposed to filtering them through our own experience and having a bunch of questions. And so uh, what you're going to hear today is stuff from Dr. Wordeliker that's both uh, personal and professional in nature, but uh, what's not up for debate is her own experience and what she has found um, in her journey as uh, an adoptee and as a psychologist. And so uh, I just hope that you're able to kind of untangle uh, from uh, any personal opinions or disagreements you may have with what uh, she or Rhonda last week or Rami the week before, uh, what any of our guests have to say to be able to just to, to come to this conversation and learn. Um, and so hopefully uh, this conversation is as helpful for you and as interesting for you and fun for you as it was for us to have. Um, and so uh, with that being said, uh, please welcome with me now, Dr. Shetra Werda-Liker. All right, well, we're here with Dr. Shetra Werda-Liker, and um, she is a practicing psychologist in Denver, Colorado, and uh, also an adult adoptee. And so uh, without me reading off the 10-page the list of your accomplishments and your work so far, um, what I would love to do is just jump right in. Thanks, thanks for being here. And, and we just want to jump right in to kind of, um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, sharing, obviously, um, you know, a, a little bit of your story, but also kind of how that played into your professional life today and kind of how you got into this place where, where you are um, a massive voice in this conversation of transracial adoption. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm so appreciative of the, the opportunity to share. Um, so I am a psychologist with a private practice in Denver where I specialize in adoption, trauma, and racial identity work. But, you know, to, to start at the beginning, I'm, I'm an adoptee from India. I was actually adopted as an infant um, back in the days when parents didn't even travel to the country. I was escorted here in a basket with three other babies. Oh, wow. um, so... <laughs> So that's how I arrived in the United States. And um, I kind of joke with my husband, like, that's why I like my space when I sleep now, because I was so squished from that long flight. Um, but, but, you know, I, I came here, I grew up in Minnesota for the most part and um, had two white adoptive parents who I loved dearly. And um, later on had a brother who was adopted from India, uh, not biological to me. But, um, you know, we, we talked about adoption enough when I was a kid that I always knew I was adopted. And, and of course, I was going to figure it out eventually, you sure. know, being that we were different races. <laughs> but at the same time, we, we didn't talk in depth about the racial aspects of it. And so it was something that I, I didn't know a lot about. And it, it really wasn't until I was in graduate school um, you know, that I had my first multicultural class. And that was the first place I really learned about the term white privilege and wow. learned about things related to systemic oppression. And, and I'll never forget, you know, the reading through Peggy McIntosh's list of the 50 daily effects of white privilege and unpacking the invisible knapsack. There's one privilege in there listed about um, bandages. Huh. And the color, you know, flesh-colored bandages and band-aids. Yeah. And yeah. that just hit me like a ton of bricks to realize, like, that's exactly it. Those are the messages I've received throughout my life about being different or not being normal or not being beautiful because of having brown skin. Like, those little things add up. Wow. And so so ever since that class, you know, now it's been 15 years or so, but ever yeah. since that time, I've become much more interested in understanding the racial identity aspect. And then becoming an adoptive parent. And, you know, my son is from Ethiopia. Okay. Um, so definitely having to learn more about race through that piece and, and being the parent to a black son in our country is a scary thing. Scary, yeah. Um, brings yeah. up a lot of really powerful feelings. So, so with all those pieces, you know, I, throughout my career, I, you know, 20 years now, it's kind of crazy <laughs> to think I've been in the mental health field and in the adoption community. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, through that time, I always did a lot of work related to trauma and attachment. And I didn't really connect that with the adoption piece until we were starting the process to adopt our son. And we were going through this mandatory training and they kept asking me questions because I was the adoptee in the room. Yeah. And I realized, oh, there's a huge need, like all these things I'm sharing, there's the professional lens, but yeah. people aren't hearing from the adoptee side of things enough. Um, so I started to focus on that. And that's, you know, for the last eight or nine years, that's what I've been specializing in. And it does feel like there's been a shift in the last 10 years or so into, you know, resources and professionals. And obviously, if, if you uh, don't follow Dr. Wardleiker's Facebook page, um, yeah, and we'll link it in the, in the show notes here, you really should. All through the month of November, she's been highlighting um, adoptee, Oh, what's the phrase he used? Adoptive, Adoptive therapist. Therapist, thank you. I knew it was professionals, but, um, it, and it's it's massive. And so obviously I know there's a, a large portion of our population who watches This Is Us. Um, 
And, you know, we had Rhonda wrote on last week talking about um, uh, having to hold that space, hold the emotional space for your family growing up. Um, and then you heard Randall in the last, well, first episode, I guess, um, you know, almost verbatim sharing what Rhonda shared with us, but but to Kate on the show and then calling his white therapist on the way home to um, to request a black therapist. And, and so if you're if you're hearing this out of context and you're like, well, that's. That's weird. You go watch the show. It'll make more sense. But um, you you talked about that on your Facebook page. And I wonder if you might speak to that as maybe as, as a starting point. So um, did you, and you don't have to share details if you don't want to, but were, were you, uh, was counseling uh, something that you were able to be a part of growing up? Or where did your desire to kind of go into this field come from? And, and was that a benefit that you had in, in your story? Yeah. So, you know, I think, more so in spite of <laughs> the way I grew up, because we really didn't talk a lot about feelings. And, you know, my parents, they tried their best. They absolutely sure. did. And they did what they could with the resources they had. But neither of them grew up in families that were great communicators or talked a lot about emotion. Yeah. Um, so I, I never went to counseling, but it was actually my first psychology class in high school. Um, it just, everything about it resonated for me. All these things that other people saw as concepts to learn. I'm like, that's real stuff. Like that yeah. makes perfect sense to me. And, and it happened to also be right around the time that the um, tragedy at Columbine high school happened, the school shooting, Wow, yeah. Um, which was just a few miles from where I live. So um, that, that had a big impact and that's where I started to get interested in the trauma piece, but yeah. that definitely led to working with marginalized communities. Okay, so uh, when you're starting off in your career and you're trying to pick, uh, you know, kind of your first wave of work to do, what was that, and and what, um, and what maybe you know guided guided that path to where you are today? Mm -hmm. Oh, a lot of things. Um, I mean, I've I've worked in a lot of mental health settings, so I've been in inpatient hospitalization units and residential treatment centers and schools and community mental health centers. So I've seen all of these different spaces where it's it's really obvious once you're there seeing these marginalized communities and seeing people who have been disenfranchised in, in various ways. And you really start to understand the intersectional piece of that, that you have people who are adopted, but also are part of the LGBTQ community or part of, you know, being a person of color or um, you know, coming from a place of having lack of access to healthcare or mental health. And it just, you start to see all the ways that these people are disadvantaged. And then you realize, oh, there's a flip side of that coin. There are people who have advantages and privileges. Yeah. And so being in all of those settings, I think, is what really helped inform me as I started to do this work, um, understanding, especially where a lot of our kids are coming from as far as their first families and mm -hmm. the experiences they have that led to adoption. Well, let's, uh, let's start there um, because this summer what we watched uh, was not new in our history, but it was kind of another chapter in the wave of um, seeing uh, violence, state-sponsored state violence against uh, people of color in our country. And so um, in kind of each of the situations that, that got major national attention this summer, uh, there's a dynamic of... Uh, people of color and people of privilege and people of privilege in the positions of power and people of color at kind of the, the disadvantage in that situation. Um, when you 
when you as an adoptee and as, as someone who was, uh, you know, of a person of color growing up in a white family, when, when you were kind of seeing these things growing up, um, what, what were those emotions like? And, and for those who are parents and parenting kids of color during this time, where do we start in uh, not doing what is easy and feels comfortable, like sweeping it under the rug and hoping they don't pay attention, um, but helping them to healthily walk through what they're seeing and hearing around them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, for me, it's, I mean, so much of what's happening this summer, what's happened over the last few years, and really what's happened over the last 400 years yeah. in this country. I mean, yeah. it all blends together. Um, but yeah, it's it's sort of like you have blinders on for a while. And as, a, as an adoptee of color raised in predominantly white spaces, I definitely had those blinders too. I lived mm-hmm. under that umbrella of white privilege where I didn't yeah. feel like I had to think a lot about those things. And, and so, you know, I, I think my first real experience of recognizing I didn't have those privilege, those privileges was when I was in my first week of college, um, you know, in the dorms, I get a knock at the door and two Asian students are standing there welcoming me to the Asian and Pacific Island American club. And I was thinking in my head, like, I'm not Asian. Oh, I am like, (laughs) so it was like, you know, right away realizing this, you know, this is how the world is going to see me. They're going to see skin color first and they're going to acknowledge race first. And, and so when I think about all the current events and everything that's happening this summer with, with George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor and, you know, the, the millions of other Black lives that, that we really need to give more awareness to and more compassion toward, that if we're not considering our kids as people of color, then we're, we're not really helping them. We're not giving them all they need to survive in this world and to thrive. And it really is putting them at a disadvantage. And so I, you know, for, for every presentation I do, for anyone who's seen me do any kind of work around race, I usually start with the Mr. Rogers quote of what's mentionable is manageable. Um, Because I I think that's the key to this, that no matter how awkward or uncomfortable the conversation is, if you can get through that conversation together with your child or your family member of color or friend of color, then you're going to come out the other side with a growth mindset and with this awareness of I can learn more and there's more to do and it's okay to make mistakes. So, so we all have to be willing to make things mentionable. Yeah. That, that quote is unbelievable. Mr. Rogers was a G. <laughs> like, yes, right. like, there, there's a different How can you quote. not trust him, right? Like after all these years, no scandal, like he's legit. Seriously. <laughs> well, and it's, it. it's not, it, it's one thing to just be able to make it scandal free on TV for that long. It's another thing to do that. And then the longer that your quotes are like uncovered, the more they just stack up. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's incredible. And for him to be doing that during that, during mm-hmm. that, uh, that era, uh, he was so far ahead of his time um, and, and you can watch those episodes from the eighties, from the, from the late seventies, eighties, and they still, you could transplant them maybe with updated graphics and all that, but like you could <laughs> transplant them to this time and they'd hold up completely. Um, Absolutely. and that's our Mr. Rogers appreciation segment. And so, the, <laughs> um, I, I got a lot of questions this past week, um, after, uh, some of Rhonda's conversation and then, uh, some of the conversation on this is us between Randall and Kate, um, 
I want to talk for a second about those who might have biological kids and kids through adoption in the same ho- in the same house, um, and specifically because this is probably the most prevalent. Even though we know it's not the only, but the, the most prevalent situation is uh, typically in our country we have uh, biological kids who are white and kids um, kids who kids of color who have been adopted in the same family for siblings, um, both for for white siblings and then for siblings of color. How? how can they begin to have those conversations? And, and we're not talking about obviously like the young, young kids, but like, mm-hmm. you know, for our, for our tweens and teens as they're moving into this space and all those emotions are swirling there, what are the conversations that, that we as parents can be helping our kids to have and how can the kids kind of become allies for each other in that conversation uh, to where it doesn't build up resentment as they grow older? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really, I think it, the reasons that we don't have those conversations or why they feel difficult to have is more about our own kind of adult logic or the stigma we've attached to that topic. And if we were just to focus on, I mean, we started talking to my son about race really early on that, you know, from the time he was two, three years old, we were talking about, yeah, so your skin color is this darker brown color. And that means your race is black and your ethnicity is Ethiopian mom's skin is a little bit lighter brown and my race is Asian and my ethnicity is Indian and dad, you know, so like we're going into all this and teaching it. And it's the same way you would say like, Hey, so that's a cow and it says moo and this is a pig and it says oink. And he, my son, he's eight years old and he's the most woke eight year old (laughs) out there. Right. Like he knows more now than I knew at 25. So it's really about like, you just start having those conversations in really matter of fact ways. And I think that's true regardless of if you have, you know, kids who are white biological kids or kids who are adoptees of color, and even for families who have no adoptees of color in them and are just white families, like these are conversations we should all be having and just starting to to first get comfortable with the language around race, like being able to understand, huh, what does intent versus impact mean? Or what is a microaggression? that, you know, we, we don't have to start with the really big concepts. We build on them just like anything else we teach our kids. Yeah, that is, that is so helpful. Um, as, as kids are uh, kind of learning and, and they're watching um, in what is a supercharged time emotionally, we have, I think, unlike any time that, at least that I can think of in history, there's these giant three swirling, um, you know, stress balls that are in the world right now of, there's the pandemic, there's race crisis, there's the political climate we have right now. And uh, really, if you are an American and you have any kind of access to the outside world, right now you're having to deal with all three in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and for our kids who are uh, maybe maybe the teenage kids um, who are dealing with the influence of social media and trying to kind of figure out on their, on their own, what do they feel and how do they think about this? Do you, any advice for that from like a developmental standpoint and looking at, cause you've, I would imagine you, you've seen a pretty good bit of research on social media and the impacts of it. And while it becomes a tired conversation sometimes uh, and everything gets blamed on it, um, as teens are kind of learning how to, to self-limit and navigate that, um, any advice for those kids um, as they're heading through that in this time? Yeah. It all comes back to the relationships at home, I think, that, you know, if they feel like they can have open dialogue about race and racism and current events with their parents, then it's going to be much easier for them to navigate what they're seeing in the social media world or out in public, like the messages they're hearing. 
that it's very much about like we want to develop critical thinking skills in our kids. That's really the goal that they can see a piece of information. And instead of parents saying, we're going to limit all social media, we're going to cut them off from that stuff because it's unhealthy. Like that's really not doing them any favor favors. That's not the real world. And so we want them to see that information and then be able to ask themselves questions about it. Like, well, what is the source? Like, where am I hearing this from? And what, whose perspective is missing from this piece? Or, you know, what, what might be the privileges or advantages I'm seeing in this kind of perspective? And how does this fit with the people of color in my life that I know or the people of this marginalized community? And so if we get them into that space of critical thinking, we have a lot less to worry about as far as them being naive or being influenced in really difficult ways by the outside world. Yeah, that's which is a, a lot harder task. <laughs> I mean, the way you made it sound like, like it should be a snap for all of us, right? But um, no, I think that is that is incredibly helpful um, for parents. One of the no, one of the things on your uh, website, which we've linked, we'll link it in the show notes. You should go there and spend all of your money. I told Doc before we got started, I was just going to go spend all of our money on that, <laughs> on the resource page, because uh, there are some things on there that are unbelievable. So definitely make time to go check that out. Um, one of the things that you have coming in December is the Adoptive Parent Journal. Um, mm-hmm. And did I get the name right? Yeah, Self-Reflection Journal. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Will you talk about that for a few minutes and let us know what that is and, and kind of what was your inspiration behind developing that? Sure. Yeah. So, so it came actually out of the adoptee self-reflection journal first. Um, it came out last summer and that was because I think, you know, I, I realized that mental health care is, is not always something that everyone has access to, but I think that everyone should have the opportunity to reflect on what they're feeling and what they need and where their beliefs come from. So this was a way to, to allow people to do that without having to make the commitment or investment in counseling. Um, So I did that for adoptees. And then what I've done with the adoptive parent journal is really excited about is that the same chapter headings that are in the adoptee journal are in the adoptive parent journal. Oh, that's so so great. So a lot of the same topics, a lot of the same material. And I think it would be great for, you know, teen adoptees to be able to go through this on their own while their parents are going through their own journal. Um, I think that can bring up a lot of really great dialogue and open up communication. But I mean, the goal of this for parents is that I really just want them to consider their adoption journey and their relationship with their child and the ways that they may be supporting and helping or even doing a disservice to their kiddos so that it is sort of this look into the future, like, oh, this adult adopted person is asking me these questions. There must be a reason for it. Um, so I, I think, you know, and I, I've had um, a couple of other adoptees slash adoptive parents um, read through the journal and give me some feedback and some adoptive friends. And they're, they're all kind of like, wow, this is great. This is everything. Like, this is what needs to be asked. So I think it's going to be a great starting point for people. And my hope is the next journal is actually going to be just focused on transracial adoption um, oh, for adoptees really? and adoptive parents. So, but this is, yeah, just kind of baby steps, right? Yeah. <laughs> One piece of self-reflection at a time. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is awesome. Um, and thinking through, now you, you mentioned earlier, you being in a, a really interesting place as an adoptive parent and an adoptee, um, have there been, I mean, if you, if you're hearing these noises in our house right now, the dog is groaning at our door as YouTube blares over the sound of that. So I'm not sure if you can hear that in the recording or not, but if you can, we're fine. Everything's fine here. Um, but uh, 
your experience as an adoptive parent, um, can you just share with us what maybe some of your emotions were, what, what that was like as an adoptee going through that process, and were there, were there parts of that process, and I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, were there parts of that process that sort of unlocked different perspectives or processing from your own experience as an adoptee as you went through it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there have been a lot of moments throughout. I mean, for me, I always knew I wanted to adopt. I just I couldn't imagine having a family and building a family any other way. That's that's my comfort zone. That's what I know. That's how I know to relate to people. Um, so for me, it, it wasn't even really a thought. It was just what I always knew I wanted to do. And then going through this process and being with my son, it's really opened up, you know, because I'm a natural communicator. I mean, I love to like dig deep and talk about things right away. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not like, hey, what's your sports team? How's the weather? I'm like, tell me your deepest, darkest stuff. Like, what's happening for you? You know, so, so this is my field. Like, I, that's what I do. But for me, it just, it, it really helps in that I can, for instance, when my son says something as an adoptee, I'm responding from my adoptee part instead of the adoptive parent part. So even, you know, I think back to like Mother's Day and, you know, a few days before that, he made a comment to me about, he's like, mom, you know, can I tell you something? And I could tell it was going to be something serious. And he goes, I I think I might love my Ethiopian parents a little bit more than you and dad. Mm -hmm. And for me, my immediate reaction as an adoptee was like, yes. He feels open enough that he can say that and be honest and, and know that we're not going to have any sort of negative reaction. And I just said, well, of course you do, buddy. They gave you life. Of course you're always going to love them more. And dad and I love them too. And, you know, let's, let's talk more about them. And he was just so excited to do it. And he still brings up that conversation a lot and still sometimes mentions like, I think I like them more. I think I love them more. And I'm like, that's great. Yeah. You know, I feel yeah. like I've done my job, but I know a lot of adoptive parents, when I first start to share that story, <laughs> when I share what my son's initial comment was, they cringe and they're like, oh no, like, hi, whoa, did that hurt? Were you okay? And I'm like, I was great. To me, that's the most beautiful thing an adoptee can do for their parents is show that I can talk to you about any of this stuff and not worry that it's going to hurt you or disappoint you or make you mad. Like, that's the kind of relationship we need to follow yeah, that felt safety is massive. I, I mean, if if roles were reversed, so as as you know, an adoptive parent, if I were to have heard that early on without any outside kind of help or knowledge or just sort of understanding, I mean, I that's been the worst day of my life, right? Like, like oh, what a mistake I've made. This is so terrible, you know. And I think that uh, in the same way that w- within this picture, that that ability to to create space for your kids to feel safe to share anything um, in giving that space that often, and this is a corny picture, but often that space draws them closer. Um, and so I think, you know, in, in hearing that from you, I, my hope is that other fo- other parents can kind of take that experience and, and hopefully like remember that moment, this conversation to, to be able to internalize that and, and work toward that as a goal of creating that, that place where you can hear that. Um, yeah, and I fully believe that if if you do not show love to your child's first parents, no matter the circumstances, you're always going to put your child in a position of feeling like they have to choose, which is going to make them filter themselves and their words. So 
it has to be about that you are are bringing them into your family, which means all of their people, all their ancestors. You know that that's part of your family now too. Okay, so uh, one of the questions that I had for you today, and, and this is probably more on the psychologist side, um, in uh, as we bring up the conversations of of race and adoption, and especially when it is uh, white people who are adopting. Um, Oftentimes, what we see, uh, there are some really hard stories, really hard origin family stories, and that becomes um, a dangerous thing in the hands of people who don't know how to share, how to talk about that. Um, and you mentioned honoring families and all of that. Um, will you will you maybe give us some coaching or just some uh, advice um, for those, hopefully, that are early on in their, in their in their kids' lives and have not, you know, maybe they've got babies or or toddlers. But um, how how can we best honor families of origin, um, and how can we best discuss uh, family situations, maybe when there are some hard details in there that you're not sure how to share as as kids get older. Yeah. Well, and I'm so glad you asked that because I feel like that relates directly to the race and culture piece yeah. that. We're, we're talking about, you know, if, if you're aware of your child coming from a difficult history or family that had a lot of struggles, you have to ask yourself, instead of just demonizing them at, at face value, you have to ask yourself why. And yeah. so if they're, they're handling, you know, all these things and dealing with all these struggles and adoption was where things led to, then there's a reason for that. And those reasons are usually related to systemic oppression. Yeah. That, you know, poverty is a huge piece and, you know, people's, people's race absolutely is something that leads to that type of poverty. And so we have to be willing to consider, you know, that if, if they didn't have enough money and they couldn't afford health care and they couldn't afford to provide for their child or they didn't have access to mental health care that would have helped stabilize them so they could raise their child. I mean, those are all things that we have to consider that it's, it's the system that put them in that position. It's not the people themselves. Like no one would choose that sure. if it was up to them. So we can, we can show love to them by acknowledging they may have made some difficult or poor choices and, you know, that that's on them. But also there was probably a limited number of options available to them. And that's the fault of society that we need to do better in supporting our marginalized group. Yeah. That's really powerful. Uh, so I would love to kind of end in this, um, in this space of, of talking about um, creating environments for our kids um, and thinking kind of holistically about the environments where they're coming up. And you mentioned, you mentioned one of your first multicultural classes ever was in college, right? And mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe the most helpful place for us to end is in kind of thinking through the really practical advice. So let's, let's think through somebody who is, you know, contemplating adoption or somebody who is, um, you know, their, their family's starting. And cause I, I think what we found is for our biological kids, this conversation has been every bit as important as it has been for our kids who, who came through adoption. So, um, would you mind talking about the importance of creating a diverse environment in a kid's life and, and what things might be of particular interest based on, you know, your, your kids' stories? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, having a diverse group of people around you is key. And I, I mean, I think maybe one of the easiest ways to, 
to kind of talk about the different aspects of that. Um, so I, a few years ago, I took Maslow's hierarchy, you know, so that psych oh, yeah. 101 class that we all take yeah. and kind of talks about our needs at different levels and how they build on each other. So I adapted that for transracial and transcultural adoptees to understand the racial identity needs. And so we've got that bottom layer of physiological needs. And so we need to create spaces where our kids are free from racial violence and they're not having basic resources denied to them so they can survive. And then beyond that, we've got the safety and security level where they need to see themselves represented around them because if they never see anyone who looks like them, it's really hard to feel safe or feel like you even exist. It's just sort of this invisible and really disorienting feeling. Yeah. And then we move beyond that and we've got this layer of love and belonging that you not only need to see those racial mirrors around you, but you need to have people in your life that you actually have real relationships with. So, you know, a mentor, a neighbor, a friend, so that you, you get to know people for who they are and not just stereotypes. So yeah, we're at that self-esteem place where kids need to see that there are people who look like them that depend on them too. And then we get to that very top of the pyramid with self-actualization, our kids of color need to feel like they are, are contributing to their communities of color, that they have something to offer and that they have something powerful and meaningful that they can offer to this community as a whole so that they really matter and feel that sense of belonging. And what I always tell white adoptive parents is that, you know, first of all, the easiest way to do this is to, to live in a truly diverse community, that it's much tougher. Like, I, I appreciate the effort that parents make sometimes. Like, we drive an hour to, to soccer because that's a team that's more diverse, or yeah. we drive, you know, 45 minutes to school every day because it's more diverse school. But that's putting a lot of pressure on everybody, and that's still sending the message that, you know, you're, you're different, you need this, but we're okay here. And it's really incongruent. Ooh, Kids yeah. pick up on that. Yeah. So, so they need, you know, they need to live in truly diverse spaces because, it, and also, I mean, I hear from parents all the time too, like, oh, we're so lucky we moved into this neighborhood. And even though it's mostly white community, like right down the street, there's this other transracially adoptive family <sighs> and our kids are the same age and they're, you know, from the same country, like it's going to be great. And the kids hate each other, right? <laughs> it's just, you know, like on paper, it looks good. But if there's only one person you're supposed to get along with, who's supposed to be your racial and cultural mirror, that inevitably is not going to work out. And so when you live in a diverse place, those relationships develop organically. And yeah. for white adoptive parents, like you can create that space. So even though you are not able to directly provide that racial and cultural mirroring, if you're in a space where you can support those relationships and nurture them and give access to them, your child's going to be able to follow those upper layers of the pyramid on their own. They just need you to get them to a space where they can get started and where you're willing to put in the work to show them that it matters to you and that, that you have those relationships too. It's not just them having friends of color, but parents too, that this is their community now too. Yeah. Well, uh, as we kind of get ready to wrap up, um, one last, last question. So um, the adoptee experience for you, as, uh, as you think through the, maybe there were a few, a few milestones for you uh, growing up where you can see, like, man, my, my processing of um, 
of my own story, my processing of uh, where I'm at and who I am and, and kind of coming into my own identity-wise, um, kind of on this, on this side of all of your work that you've done and all of that, um, what advice do you have for other adoptees who are, uh, I mean, again, I got several phone calls this week from folks asking like, okay, well, where, where do I start and how do I get going with this? And I, um, and I had very few answers to give. Um, but what, you know, what advice would you share to those who are beginning to walk through processing their story and, and wanting to kind of find next steps um, and, and how they can get started with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for adoptees, one of the most crucial things can be to work with somebody who is an adoptee. So like an adoptee therapist or somebody who offers that support from the adoptee perspective, because there is this this lived experience bond, right? That we're all part of this club we didn't necessarily ask to be part of. Um, but I hear from so many adoptees, they feel like they're educating their therapist and, and it's not a space where they really feel like they can just be themselves and be the one who's taken care of. Yeah. And so that's important. But I also think there, I mean, on social media, there are all these groups developing too, you know? So Indiana Adoptee Network and different meetups here within Colorado and um, you know, group, I know drop-in groups and things like that in California. So once you start to look on social media for these adoptee groups, there are a lot of spaces where you can start to do even just virtual meetups with other adoptees support. And, um, you know, that, that, I mean, that in itself is so powerful just to not feel alone. Yeah. So I, I offer, like you said, I have a lot of resources on my website. And so I have a lot of, um, I have a list called the ultimate adoption resource list. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. includes podcasts and books and um, documentaries and social media pages, a lot of places where you can start searching for those connections. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I just, really, really grateful. And I think incredibly helpful stuff that you shared. And so thank you so much for your work and just for being willing to share your stuff with us and, and share your time with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Uh, will you let everybody know kind of where they can find you online and how they can get to all of your stuff outside of your website? We'll have that linked. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, well I'm on Facebook, so beyond words, psychological services as, um, I, I do a lot of posting there just on, current events and different topics related to National Adoption Awareness Month. And so um, that's a great place to kind of get inside my head a little bit more. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. And, uh, and we will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. All right. Powerful stuff from Dr. Werdeliker today. Um, hopefully you were taking notes uh, or, or kind of making mental notes of, of what to go back and uh, look deeper into, but uh, we have linked her Facebook page and the resource page from her website uh, in the show notes below. I would just encourage you, spend some time going through and, um, and uh, reading uh, the work that she's put together there, uh, as well as, I mean, she's got everything from uh, webinars, podcasts, um, articles, uh, books, the adaptive and uh, dot to parent and adoptee journals that we've mentioned in the, in the show today. So uh, I, I would just encourage you to go spend some time there today and uh, and just spend all your money there. Um, so uh, as we wrap up with her and as we continue in November, we've got more guests lined up. Uh, we're going to continue with our series in transracial adoption. We cannot wait uh, for the guests next week. There's a three-year-old screaming at me. So I think that's our cue to go. For Kyle Wright, who mixes and edits our, our sound every week. For Tad Jewett, 
who came up with the music. And for everybody at Empowered to Connect, uh, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.